following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Judges chapter 3 today, and uh, as, I've, as I've done the last few years, uh, what I like to do is, on the first Sunday of the year, uh, use the Sunday morning sermon to introduce our theme for the coming year, and, um, and so you can see, bum, 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 on the screen, drum roll, our theme for 2024 is Your Next Step, and our, our burden Uh, Behind this theme is that it's very easy for all of us as Christians to begin to stagnate. Jerry Bridges compares it to driving on cruise control. You find a a comfortable pace of of Christian living, find a comfortable pace of service to, to God in the church and in other spheres. And it's comfortable because you're doing enough that that no one looks down at you for for not being busy. And your conscience is okay because you're doing stuff. But you're also not working too hard. You're not pressing ahead. And so, it's comfortable. You relax, lean back, turn on the cruise control, and enjoy a really pleasant, easy ride. And you stagnate. You stagnate in your Christian life. And it's lazy. It betrays the the passionate spirit with which Christ served you. And it grinds the ministry of the church to a halt. And and I think we we felt that grind at at our church. It's no secret that over the last few years, we've had a number of of really key ministry leaders move away. And, And we've had to face the reality that we don't just have a pipeline of people ready to step into some of those more significant roles of leadership in our church. So, as leaders, we've been confronted with the idea that, that we need to do better about raising up and equipping new leaders. So the problem starts with us. But you are responsible for yourself. You are responsible to make sure that you as a Christian don't stagnate. So today I want to challenge you, and throughout the year I want to challenge you, to shut off the cruise control. And start thinking about your Christian life and about your service to God like a race car driver. So, so you're pressing to the head. You're trying to do everything you can. You're, you're focused. You are stretching yourself. And you want to see what God will do. So I want to challenge you to take a dose of godly ambition. And to drive that home, I want to look at the story of Ehud. Because Ehud exemplifies godly ambition. And he does so through a really compelling story. This is one of my favorite stories. I've loved this story since I was a kid. And because, because Ehud is the type of hero that you love to root for. He's a daring, ambitious man. And the villain in the story, Eglon, King Eglon, is the kind of villain that you just love to hate. And that you can't wait to receive justice. It's a story that slowly builds tension. There's a big climax and a happy ending. And all that makes this story memorable and by the grace of God, impactful. So I hope that today you will fall in love with Ehud. And that by the grace of God, you will determine 
to imitate his example. So, so in particular, I hope that you will come away challenged to ambitiously pursue your next step towards a fruitful Christian life. And, and so Ehud's story begins in, in verses 12 through 14 by introducing us to Israel's plight. So, so we're just going to read section by section through the story. So verse 12 says, Now the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, probably a lot of you are familiar with the fact that that the book of Judges is built around a cycle that repeats itself over and over. And so, uh, Israel's living there in the land, and and over time, they begin to rebel against God. And and they turn against Him, they sin against His will, and God judges them by sending retribution to, to correct them and to bring them back to Himself. And so, Israel is oppressed by some foreign power, and then after time... That brings them to repentance. They, at the very least, regret their sin, turn to God for help. And when they turn to God for help, God forgives. And he sends a judge to rescue them or to deliver them. And so verse 12 begins this story by telling us that this cycle begins again. Israel, it simply says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it doesn't tell us any more about that. It doesn't tell us how they sinned against God. Instead, it quickly jumps to the second stage of the cycle when it says that in response, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel for for all the evil that they had done. So so we're going to see uh, that this king Eglon, again, is the kind of villain that you just love to hate. but, But don't miss the fact that the Lord raised up King Eglon. This is no accident. This is not just a matter of of him being a really powerful king. No, he is just a pawn in the sovereign hand of God to to bring about what he wants to do in his people. And God allows him to become king uh, of the country of Moab. And then, and not only that, he he forms a federation or confederation with, with two other nations, Ammon and the Amalekites. Now, you can see on this map here, Hopefully you can see it. Uh, the, the, here are the Moabites. They're down here. And Ammon is over here. And then the Amalekites, they're further down. You can't see them on the map, but they're way down here, kind of south of Judah. And, and all three of these nations, are, are throughout the Old Testament, are bitter rivals of Israel. You know, when you read the Old Testament, you see constantly that Israel is fighting against Ammon and against Moab. And, and Amalek was probably Israel's nastiest enemy. In fact, when Israel was in the wilderness during the time of Moses, they committed such atrocities against Israel that Moses commanded the people to wipe them out. And of course, they didn't. And now they're reaping the consequences because Amalek is participating in oppressing them. And and King Eglon is the one who who unites them against Israel. And, And he is a despicable villain. Now, his name, his name Eglon, means little bull or little calf. But there's nothing small about King Eglon. No, instead, verse 17 tells us 
that he is a very fat man. Now, in our day, we tend to sympathize with people who battle against obesity and have a hard time managing their weight, but, but there is nothing sympathetic about King Eglon. No, instead, we're, we're, you're meant to understand that he has grown fat by oppressing the Israelites and eating all of their food. So, when you think of King Eglon, you know, think of this evil king sitting back in his comfy palace, and people are bringing him plate after plate of food, and he's just sitting there shoving it in his mouth as fast as he can. You know, grease is dripping down his chin. And the Israelites, they're off in the hills, and, and they are starving to death. They don't have enough food to eat. They're struggling to survive. And this evil egomaniac couldn't care less how they're struggling. So he is the kind of evil villain that you love to hate and that you hope will receive justice. But don't forget the fact that God used him to judge his people. And specifically, verse 13 says that he possessed the city of the palm trees, which, which is almost certainly the city of Jericho, which is right here uh, uh, just, just to the, uh, to the west of, of the Jordan River, kind of on the edge of Israelite territory. And, um, and so, so understand that it's not like he invaded the whole land, took over all the land of Israel. No, he just kind of went, he, he nudged his way in there. But, but Jericho's a big deal, right? Jericho's the first city that Joshua conquered when he entered the land. It was a very productive agricultural area, so an important source of food for the Israelite people. And as well, it's a really strategic spot as far as controlling traffic and trade across the Jordan River. And so big, fat, ugly Eglon sets up camp in this lush, important area. And meanwhile, he pushes the children of Israel up to the hills where they're struggling to survive. And, and not only that, he demands heavy taxation of them. And, and what's an important part of the story is that for 18 years, 18 years, Israel just submitted. Now, I'm sure they complained a lot. You go down to the Ephraimite coffee shop and, and they were talking plenty about how they hated old King Eglon and how they hated the taxes that he was taking from them. But no one did anything about it. No one took a risk. No one trusted God enough to fight back. No, they chose cruise control. Just take it. Don't cause waves. Do what you have to do. And so for 18 years, Israel grew thin while King Eglon got fatter and fatter and fatter. Until finally, God raised up an ambitious leader. And the next section describes his ambition. So, so let's read uh, verses 15 through 25. It says, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. 
and all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now, verse 15 uh, briefly mentions the the third stage in the judges' cycle. So it tells us there that finally, after 18 years of oppression, the Israelites cried out to God. Now, you'd think they would have thought of that a long time ago, but they didn't. They, They tried their own way. They did their own thing. Finally, they became desperate enough that they cried out to God for help. And God graciously responds with the fourth stage in the cycle, Verse 15 says that the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, don't miss the fact that God is the one who raises up Ehud. And I, I want to spend a lot of our time today really celebrating this man, Ehud, but God is the one who does this. Now, there's no prophetic announcement. There are no miracles in this story. But God is quietly working in the shadows to accomplish his will and to answer the prayers of the Israelites. And I think it's important for us to remember as well that God is always working for us as well, even if you can't see it. Now, sometimes when life is kind of in the doldrums, we think that nothing is happening. God is distant. But Christian, God is always at work. His spirit is transforming you into the image of his son. And God is at work in all of his children around you. God is building his church. So I hope that that you are passionate about the things that matter to God. And that you believe that God is at work in the world to do his will. Because if you want to grow godly ambition like Ehud, you have to see the world through the eyes of God's passion. That you are passionate with God for the work of the Great Commission. And you have strong faith to believe that God is able to do what He plans. And that's what we see here with Ehud. You know, that that God raises up this deliverer. And and Ehud is exactly, again, the the kind of hero that that you just love to to, to follow and, and root for. After all, there's no indication in the text that that Ehud is any sort of political leader. He's not a king. He's not a bureaucrat. Doesn't even seem to necessarily be a general of the army. He's just a regular guy from the rather insignificant tribe of Benjamin. So no one is expecting Ehud to deliver the Israelites. No one's saying, you got to go solve this man. So he had plenty of reasons just to... Ignore the problem, 
ignore what's happening in his nation, and go about his life. But Ehud was bursting with a strong faith and godly ambition. He's not the kind of guy who can just sit on his hands while all of this evil is going on. And God had prepared this man specifically to act. Now, now verse 15 says that he was a left-handed man, which is great, you know, and we left-handed people are special people, all right? So don't forget that, all right? We are special, all right? But, but, but it's not so much, what, what seems to be going on here is not so much just that he was naturally a left-handed man. No, no, what seems to be going on is that the tribe of Benjamin, that they would train their, their boys for war by, by helping them to become ambidextrous. And the reason that that's probably what, what it means when we talk about the left-handed Benjamites is because Judges 20 describes a whole army of Benjamite soldiers who are left-handed. And it's not as if the whole tribe is just naturally left-handed. So, so what's probably going on here is that part of how the tribe of Benjamin trained their boys for war is they, they taught them how to be ambidextrous and, and, and gave them special training to become effective soldiers. So Ehud is probably a well-trained soldier. You can picture him as a tough guy. A guy who knows how to fight. And because of that, it seems, Israel chooses him to deliver this tribute to Eglon. That the Eglon demanded. Now this tribute is probably a whole bunch of agri- agricultural produce. So he's got maybe wagons that are full of grain and, and, and other food. And it is his responsibility to, to deliver this food along with several other men to King Eglon. And of course, this is food that Israel desperately needs. Their, their children need this food. But Eglon is demanding it of them. Otherwise, he will attack. And so Ehud is chosen to deliver all of this. And, 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 and understand, you know, so, so he's delivering tribute, but he's not just doing a job, Right? I mean, this is a symbol of Israel's humiliation. This is a symbol of the fact that Israel was not what God had called them to be, that a foreign pagan king was over them. And what is so great about Ehud is that he was not content just letting a pagan king humiliate the people of God. And he wasn't content just doing his job. No, instead, as soon as he gets this assignment, he begins to think, This is my opportunity. I'm going to get to meet the king. And a big fat guy like Eglon, he is going to love someone who shows up with wagons full of food. And so he begins to think, how can I take advantage of this opportunity to take a stand for God's glory and the good of his people? And ultimately, Ehud devises a really risky assassination plot. So first of all, the text tells us that he makes for himself a dagger about a cubit long and and two-edged. And so this dagger would have been probably about 14 to 18 inches long. It's it's the perfect assassination weapon. Because it's small enough that he can hide it on his thigh and no one can see it. And as well, he makes the dagger two-edged. So that he can just swiftly stab it into the man without taking any sort of swing. And so Ehud... He had a plan before he ever started on that journey towards King Eglon. And so he makes the dagger, gets the food, assembles his men together. 
And with a dagger strapped to his leg, he led his team to Eglon's home. Knowing full well that if anyone discovered that dagger on his leg, he's a dead man. Because you don't conceal that kind of weapon unless you have something that you want to do with it. But he took the risk. Because God's purpose mattered more than his life. And faith, not fear, dominated his vision. And he was a man of ambition, not a man of inaction. And so what about you? You know, I wonder, do you share Ehud's zeal for God's purposes? Are you someone that, that cares about the things that matters to God? You know, do you care? Are you passionate about your own spiritual growth? That you do not want to stay where you are or, or dwell in the sins that, 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 that are all around you, but you want to change. And what's your passion for the people of God around you? And are you zealous to see that the church of God grow into the image of the Savior? And like Ehud, do you believe in God's power to do something? And the measure of your passion for God and the measure of your faith in His ability to work is your ambition. So are you passionately striving to take the next step? You know, whether it be in your own Christian life or in your service to God. Or are you happy like the rest of the nation on cruise control? By God's grace, believe in God the way Ehud did. And act on faith. Well, return to the story, as Ehud is walking along to Eglon's territory, I'm sure that his heart was racing. And he knows the risk he's taking on. But he stays cool. And so finally, after, after a short journey, he and his men, they arrive at, at, at whatever home it is that Eglon is staying at. He goes inside, scopes out the scene, understands uh, the escape routes and everything that's involved. And then, based on how trusting Eglon is of him later in the story, I have to imagine that he absolutely laid on the schmooze. And he tells Eglon how wonderful he is, how, how beautiful his home is, and, and just tells him all the things that, that an egomaniac like Eglon loves to hear. And Eglon ate it up. He thinks, man, this Ehud guy is a great guy. And he brought me a lot of food. And he's nice and he's telling me the things I want to hear. This is a guy that I can really trust. And so they finish their conversation. And then Ehud and the other Israelite men leave. They walk away. They start heading home. And and Ehud, you have to think, you know, you have to figure that as they're walking away from the palace, that he's thinking, man, I'm in the clear. No one discovered the dagger. I'm sure the temptation crosses my mind. You know, if I want, if I want, I could just keep walking and, and just forget about this whole idea of assassinating the king. But Ehud was committed at any cost. And so the text tells us that he turns around at the stone images or the stone idols at Gilgal. And so uh, I don't know if you can see it or not, but, but here's Jericho and Gilgal is just a, a little bit north of there. And so he gets to Gilgal, and, and there's these images, there's these idols there. And, and it's really a shrewd place for him to send the other guys home and, and for him to turn around and go back to the king. Because, because in the ancient world, if this is a place, that kind of like an idolatrous uh, shrine or something, it would be a place where people would expect to receive di- divine messages. 
So for him to go back to Eglon and say, I, I, I have a special message from God after I turned around at, at, at Gilgal would be a, a very shrewd move. And so that's what he does. He, he dismisses the other men, says, you guys go home. I, I got to go. I got to run back to the king. I, I got I got a message I got to share with him. And so he starts heading back to Eglon's home all by himself. Now, if this were a movie, this is the part of the movie where you begin to you know, kind of lean forward. You know, what's going to happen? Your heart begins to race. Is he going to get killed? Are they going to find out? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to follow through? Is he going to wimp out? Who's going to notice the dagger? And so he makes his way back to the palace. And, and when he reaches Eglon, he tells him, I have a secret message for you, O king. And it works. It works. And, and, and Ehud, he can't believe it. And Eglon is buying the story hook, line, and sinker. And he doesn't just say, yeah, I want to hear your, your, your message. He, he, he dismisses everyone else from the room. He tells everyone else to go away, and he just leaves himself there by himself, with this Israelite man. And not only that, the text tells us he invites Ehud into his private chamber. Now this is probably a, a rooftop room uh, with lots of windows. And so the text tells us that, you know, that, that the, this was up on the roof of the house. So probably, you know, the, op- the windows are open so the breeze can blow through and uh, keep this man relatively cool in, in the heat of the summertime. And, uh, and so they're up in this room and, 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 and incredibly, Ehud has the king of Eglon, his, his rival, all to himself. But don't forget the fact that all the windows are open. And so one scream, one yell from, from King Eglon, and Ehud is a dead man. And so, but even despite all that, he goes ahead with his plan. And he tells Eglon once again that he has a message from God. And Eglon, he, again, he's an egomaniac. He thinks he's invincible. No one is going to hurt him. And so he stands to hear this message. And Ehud approaches him as if to whisper the message in his ear. And as he gets close enough to whisper the message in his ear, he, he swiftly pulls the dagger from his arm and, or, or out of his thigh, and with all the strength, he shoves it into the man's fat belly. Shoves it all the way in. It's an incredible scene, right? And the text tells us that he shoves it so hard, and this man is so fat, that, that when the, the blade goes in, he can't pull it out. The, the, the fat and everything in this man's body just pulls the, the dagger down into his body. Which, by the way, is probably a good thing, because uh, it prevented blood spatter from getting, you know, getting Ehud soaked in blood, which, of course, would not make him look innocent when he wants to leave the castle. And so that all goes in, and, and then adding to the humiliation of Eglon, the text tells us that the refuse came out. And most likely what that's talking about is that when the sword enters his gut, his bowels relax, and everything empties out on the ground. It's a beautiful picture, right? That's a guy picture all the way. And yuck, right? It's a disgusting, humiliating scene. But Eglon got what he deserved. And God humiliated this evil man who was oppressing the people of God. 
And can't you imagine Ehud just standing over this guy, amazed at what God had done? He had just assassinated a foreign oppressor. But don't forget the fact that that Ehud is still in grave danger. I mean, he's standing in the middle of the lion's den, and he has just killed the king. And and so, but, but no one suspects anything. Apparently, he was able to kill the king so fast that he was not able to let out a single peep. No one heard anything at all. And so Ehud collects himself like a cool cat, just walks out, locks the door behind him, maybe you know, says hi to the guards as he's walking by. Of course, he wants to get out of there as quick as he can, but he wants to not appear suspicious at all, and so he just casually walks away. And after he leaves, the guards think, well, we've got to go check on the king. And they go to the door, though, and when they go to the door, the door is locked. And then again, the windows are all open. They probably get a whiff of the relaxed bowels, and they think, oh, you know, the king is on the john. He, he's using the bathroom, and, and so that's what they assume. And so they, well, we don't want to disturb him while he's on the john. So, so, so they just kind of stand there for a bit. And, and the text tells us that they waited until until they became anxious. That's kind of a funny picture to imagine, right? And you got these like, you know, Harry and Joe standing there and and one guy's like, you know, it's taking him a really long time. And, and the next guy's like, well, I don't want to walk in on him. I, mean, I don't want to walk on the king while he's on the bathroom, in the bathroom. You check on him. And like, I'm not going in there. Well, let, let's give it a few more minutes. And the whole time, Ehud is walking further and further and further away from danger. And, and finally, finally, when, when they couldn't wait any longer, they go through the doors, they, they burst in, and, and there on the floor, to their horror, they find their king laying in his blood and his own excrement. What a scene. And God gave Eglon justice. Now, again, through all this, God hasn't seemed to do anything. Right? There, there's a natural explanation for every detail of the story. But we know that God's hand of providence stands over everything that takes place. God raised up Eglon to judge his people. And once he was done with him, he, he gave him the judgment that he deserved for his brutal oppression. And, and praise God as well for Ehud's ambition. Right? Because while the rest of the nation what was sitting on their hands just waiting for something to happen, he made something happen. He saw an opportunity to honor God and to make a difference, and he seized it. He risked his life without God ever telling him that he'd be okay. He risked his life because he believed that God's purpose was worth the risk. And so ask yourself, am I more like the people sitting at home wishing something would change? Or am I like Ehud, who was committed to making change? Do I have the faith to see what God can do? The ambition to make something happen? And the courage to take a step of faith? Now, I'll say more about that later, but, but first, notice that the story is not done. Because, because the Moabites are still in the land. Israel is still oppressed. So verses 26 through 30 then close the story by describing Ehud's inspirational leadership. So, so verse 26 says, Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying. And he passed by the idols 
and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was in front of them. And he said to them, pursue them. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Now, when we come to this section, you have to remember that Ehud had told no one about his plans. So, so no one else has any idea what he is trying to do or what he has done ultimately. And so after he escapes the Moabite territory, he, he finds himself a, a conspicuous spot. He blows a trumpet, calls the people together because he has an announcement to make. And just imagine the people's surprise when he says, I just killed the king. I killed Eglon. They think, wow. And then Ehud declared, pursue them. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Now, folks, I mean, so it's important to recognize that Ehud is not just, you know, a gruff, tough soldier. This is a man who knows his theology. He knows the promises that God had given to the people of Israel, that they were his and that he would fight for them when they trusted him. And so he called the people to trust God. He said, if we trust God and we fight, God will be faithful. And the people, they recognize God's hand. They think, I mean, God has given us a warrior with the courage and skill to kill King Eglon. And God has given us a leader that we can follow. And so after 18 years of wilting under Eglon's pressure, they rise up to fight. I mean, all they needed was an ambitious, godly leader like Ehud. And and God did what he said he would do. He gave these skinny Israelites who had been hiding in the hills for 18 years the strength to win. The text tells us that they killed 10,000 Moabite. It says stout, or you could say well-fed, plump, healthy soldiers, they killed 10,000 of these men. And God used Ehud to inspire a tremendous victory. And verse 30 ends the story by saying that God gave Israel rest for 80 years. Now, for Israel to enjoy 80 years of rest without any sort of foreign oppression, that has to mean that, that Ehud did not just lead a political revival, that that he led a spiritual revival as well. So so he taught the people to know God, to trust God, to obey His will. And they responded. They served God. And God blessed their obedience. And folks, the church today needs more people like Ehud. LifePoint, LifePoint needs people who are passionate about God's purposes. And they have the vision to see what God can do. And they're willing to step out in faith and serve Him. Believing that the grace of God, the strength of God is enough. That I can serve God, I can make a difference in His strength. After all, I mean, Satan 
does not get worried about people who sit around, do nothing, and complain about all that's wrong. No, Satan, no, no people with Ehud's godly ambition, those are the ones who threaten Satan's strongholds. So we need in our church an army of godly men who are willing to lead their families and lead in the church like Ehud. They're focused on what God wants. What God wants. They believe in God's power to move. And they boldly lead their families and they lead in the church to do God's will. Now we need women who do the same. Who who are passionate about discipling their kids. Discipling all the kids of our church and and other ladies in our church to know the Lord and serve Him. and, And to see our church be the best it can be. You know, we need people who are passionate about reaching our community for Christ, who care about the gospel. We need teenagers who don't spend their days dreaming about fulfilling every lustly passion, but dream about storming the gates of hell and making a difference for eternity. So by God's grace, we want 2024 to be a year where we multiply Ehuds, where we become like this man. And to get you thinking about what that means specifically for you, I want to close with four questions. The first one is, are you passionate about God's passions? You know, and this is really important, folks, because most people never would have even thought to do what Ehud did, right? The only reason this story even happens is because Ehud has the passion of God. And he, were, he would never have delivered Israel if he were not deeply troubled by pagan oppression and Israelite apathy. So what about you? And do you walk around, drive around this town grieved by the lost condition of so many people around you? Or just irritated at, at, at whatever's going on? You know, do, you, do you love people? You know, what, what's your focus when, when you rub shoulders with people here in the church? Are you looking for spiritual needs, noticing them when they pop up? And are you passionate about making a difference in people's lives? Or just frustrated by their their problems? And most importantly, what do you see? What is your passion when you look at yourself? Is your passion to pamper yourself with as much pleasure and comfort as you can? Or is the passion of your life to become like Jesus? To press towards the mark. To be what God has called you to be. So do you share God's passion? Because you will never be a person of godly ambition if you do not have the passion of God. Secondly, do you live by fear or by faith? I want to emphasize again that this is not merely the story of a heroic man. It's a story of grace and faith, right? Because, because God is the one who governs every detail of this story. And he is the, as well the one who governs every detail of your life. He is sovereign over you. And as well, I mean, God's grace is greater. It was greater than Israel's sin. It was greater than the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And God's grace is greater than every challenge that you face too. 
God's grace is greater than, than your natural fears and limitations. So, so don't look at your next step. What God wants to do in your life through eyes of fear, but eyes of faith in what God can and will do through you. And then another question. Is your Christian life defined by ambition or excuses? Are, are you someone who's quick to find excuses or quick to find solutions? Do you love to complain or do you love to fix? Now, are you more like the Israelites who griped about King Eglon? Or are you like Ehud who was home sharpening his dagger? You know, so, so, so stop making excuses about why you can't change. Why your sin is just too great. Stop making excuses about why you can't make a difference. Why everything's stacked against you. Why everything is everyone else's fault. And, and be like Ehud and be an agent of change. So, so, so don't be a person of excuse. Be a person of godly ambition. And then the final question and I want you to get really specific here in, in how you think about an answer. What is your next step? Now, I would imagine that for some of you, as, as you're sitting there, the Spirit of God is convicting you about the fact that you have grown really stagnant in your Christian life. And you aren't pressing towards the mark in your spiritual growth. You're just kind of meandering aimlessly. And 2024 needs to be the year when you get serious about knowing God, about swimming in His grace, understand the gospel and pursuing holiness. There's probably other people where you've gone, grown really stagnant in, in your ministry at home. Now you are not striving to make your home or your marriage the Christ-honoring factory of godliness that God wants it to be. So 2024 needs to be the year where you change the culture of your marriage. Change the culture of your parenting. And still others have, have stagnated in developing and using your spiritual gifts. Now for some of you, 2024 needs to be the year that you get baptized and join the church. You've just kind of been hanging out on the edges, not really doing anything, showing up some here and there. And you need to take that step of getting committed and getting involved. Maybe this needs to be the year that you start, that you stop just you know, letting people serve you and, and care for you. And, and where this needs to be the year where you begin to really invest in people. Like you go after the people, go after people strategically with love and a heart to make a difference in their lives. And maybe this is the year that you need to move from just being on the fringes of the congregation. Again, just kind of hanging out showing up, to, to being the year that, that you begin to, to, to be a, an investor. Someone who is moving the church in the direction it needs to go. Maybe this is the year that you need to move from a support role. Or you just kind of show up, do your part, and then leave to where you become a leader in ministry. Where you are you are helping move things forward in, in a higher capacity. But whatever it is, don't be content where you are. Ask God to search your heart and show you what your next step, maybe multiple steps, ought to be. 
And then take a step of faith. Take a step of faith. And do you think that Ehud wasn't afraid when he walked up to Ehud's ear or Eglon's ear? I'm sure he was. But he took a step of faith. And just imagine what God can do if we will all live like Ehud in 2024. Father, thank you that you are sovereign over our lives, that you are in control. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to show us the areas where we need to grow and where we need to change. And God, I pray that we would be open to the work that you want to do. Oh God, I pray that you would give us grace for the hard, difficult, scary steps that you may have for us. And God, we're excited to see what you will do and how you will work as we commit ourselves to your will and to your purpose. And so God, we pray for your help. We ask for your strength and for your grace. Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And Father, I pray that all of us would press towards the mark this year. That at the end of the year, if you tarry, we would be more like Jesus. We would be more fruitful in ministry. And that this church would glorify your name in a greater way as we multiply servants. And so, God, we look forward to what you're going to do and to how you're going to work. Thank you for your word and for the conviction and encouragement of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.